0: Please open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3 and stand with me to read God's Word. What a wonderful time of worship we've been able to have already today and now the privilege we have of opening God's Word and reading and hearing what He has to say to us today. We're going to read Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 through 17 about the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Lord God, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you, Lord, that you want to speak to us, and we pray, Lord, that you would show us the things that you want us to see in your word today, that we would be the people that you want us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It is a good thing to want to please God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 says that believers in Jesus are to have as their ambition to be pleasing to him pleasing God is a thing many people want to do but don't know how to do it how can we mere mortals slugging it out here down here on earth do anything that God Almighty would would consider pleasing today I hope to shed some light on that subject Especially by showing that baptism, yes, that's right, baptism is one of the ways we can do just that. One of the ways that we can be pleasing to God. Now we began our study of the Matthew's Gospel focusing on Jesus, the King of Grace. We've seen Mary and Joseph welcoming his arrival. We saw the wise men adoring him. We saw King Herod trying to kill him. And then we've seen John the Baptist as a humble forerunner and as a a bold servant of God. But now we turn to Christ's baptism, which really is, you could say, the coronation of the king. It's his anointing. Uh, Everything so far up to this moment in the Gospel of Matthew was prep. For this moment in time, when Jesus came upon the scene... And his ministry really begins. Bethlehem, Egypt, Nazareth, all the places he had lived now were were but a mere memory. Because from here on out, Jesus had no place to call his earthly home. The Son of Man, as he put it, had no place to lay his head. And now he would be fully engaged in his mission. The reason he came to earth. Now I believe the key to understanding this passage of scripture is found in, in in knowing the meaning of a phrase that's found in verse 15, to fulfill all righteousness. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? First, let's set the stage. If you look at verse 13, you'll see that Jesus arrived from Galilee, and he came to the Jordan, and he came to be baptized by John the Baptist. It's one of the most interesting conversations in all the Gospels, Jesus comes to John to be baptized, the Son of God, God incarnate, presents himself to John as a candidate for baptism. And John, who was about six months older than Jesus and was his cousin, was calling people to repent, to turn to God in preparation for Christ, and here was Christ coming to John to be baptized. It didn't look right to John. It didn't seem right. So John tries to prevent it from happening. The construction of the word in Greek lets you know that he kept trying to prevent Jesus being baptized. That must have been a funny scene. No, no, you can't do it. No, no, don't do it. It wouldn't be prudent. Jesus came to John and said, baptize me, and John says, oh no, this isn't right can't do it see he objects to the idea of baptizing jesus but he does so for a good reason he sees himself as someone in need to be baptized by jesus that he needs the purification from sin that jesus was coming to provide you see john's baptism was symbolizing repentance and he saw no need for the spotless lamb of god to repent John's resistance to Jesus' request was a lot different than his resistance to the Pharisees and the Sadducees' request for baptism. You know what happened there. They were coming for baptism, but they were not wanting to repent, and they were showing no fruit in their life of wanting to follow God. And so Jesus is coming for baptism, and John, like he did with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, said, no, no, but for a completely different reason. A completely different reason. See, Jesus was coming as the only person that never needed any repentance. He had no sin to confess. Perfect, sinless, unable to sin, impeccable. God the Son. See, the religious leaders were completely unworthy of baptism, and Jesus was completely Overworthy of baptism. That's a new word. He was overworthy of it. More worthy than is possible to be baptized. So why did Jesus, who knew his sinlessness better than than John the Baptist did, why would he submit himself to being baptized? See, Jesus said that John needed to baptize him. Verse 15, he says, permit it. Let it be at this moment in time because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's interesting who he's talking about when he says it's fitting for us. It seems to be that he is saying, John, you and I, it's, it's fitting for us to be doing this right now. It's part of God's plan to fulfill all righteousness. I was thinking the other day about this, thinking it could also mean us being the Trinity the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is fitting for us, the triune God, to fulfill all righteousness. Whichever way it is, righteousness and fulfilling all righteousness is the key to this passage. So so what does it mean? Think with me for a moment about what righteousness is. Righteousness means the quality of life that comes from obedience to God's will. If you remember what Romans chapter one says, there is none righteous. (laughs) There's not one. No one's righteous. Because apart from Christ, no one can be righteous. You cannot work your way up to a level of righteousness and then be pleasing to God, therefore be accepted by God. And if you think in terms of fulfilling righteousness, we are speaking in the gospel of Matthew of the sphere of of God's sovereignty, the sphere of God's kingdom. And, and in Scripture, the, the sphere of God's kingdom, his rule is spoken of as, as being defined by righteousness. That Jesus' baptism, his, his getting baptized by John the Baptist, pointed to his death that was a, as a ransom for many. What he called a baptism, he called his death, that he would, he would undergo a baptism, Which showed his perfect obedience. Obedience to the point of death on a cross. In which case he fulfilled all righteousness. In fact, go with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. There are are two Old Testament tie-ins that I want to show you. One is in Jeremiah 23. The other is in Psalm 40. But Jeremiah 23 and verse 5 As God speaks of a coming Messiah, as God speaks of a branch, a righteous branch, very clearly speaking of Jesus, in verse 5, Jeremiah 23, 5 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. And then if you go over to Psalm 40 with me. Psalm 40, some words that Jesus read that related to him. Psalm 40, starting at verse 7. Speaking of God's righteousness, it says this, Then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Speaking of Jesus, he was able to say, I delight to do your will. I want to be pleasing to the Father. God the Son saying, I want to be pleasing to the Father. It's a tie-in to Matthew 3, 17, when the Father announces, This is my beloved Son in whom I am, what? Well-pleased. Jesus' own words testify to that, that the plan of God was to send his son to be the sacrifice for our sins, and Jesus came into the world to save sinners, as 1 Timothy 1.15 says, and Jesus himself said in John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He said in John 8.29 that he who sent me is with me, and I always do the things that are pleasing to him that God the Son was always doing the things that were pleasing to God the Father. You see, God's good purpose was to send Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Every step along the way then, in his ministry, all the way along the path to the time he died on the cross, was fulfilling all righteousness. Over and over again, this was done to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet. And Jesus himself saying, we must You must baptize me because it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness was not being fulfilled at that moment in time. It was one more thing in the process that was fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus coming to do what he said he would do. God's good purpose being fulfilled. Basically, fulfilling all righteousness means to do what is pleasing to God, to do what is pleasing to God, what is according to his will. What is in sync with God's purposes and God's plan? That's why he was able to say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, because Jesus being baptized was in accordance with the will of God, in accordance with the plan of God for Jesus to come for a very specific purpose to save sinners. But how did Jesus' baptism do that? How was it pleasing to God? How did it go along with God's purposes? Why was Jesus baptized? What were the reasons? I'll give you three. The first reason that Jesus was baptized was to identify with John's preparatory work. Go to John chapter one with me. The gospel of John in chapter one. And what you'll see here is where Jesus is walking up to John. John chapter one, verse 29. And Jesus is walking up to John, and John sees him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for, I, for he existed before me, but I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. And John's explaining what his preparatory work was to, to pave the way for the coming king. And then he says this, I have seen the Spirit, and he's pointing to this baptism scene, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, so he's testifying that the Father spoke to him and said this, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And John says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He is God. John's preparatory work was now coming to an end. See, Jesus was giving credence to John's ministry, connecting the dots between he and John. This was the official handoff between John the Baptist and Jesus. I ran track when I was in high school, and every once in a while I'd find myself in a relay race. And the whole purpose of the relay race was beyond winning the race, was to make sure that the baton was not dropped. Baton dropped, race over for you. The Americans did that twice in two very crucial races in the Olympics this summer. Jesus is uh, grabbing the baton from John, and now John will appropriately fade off into the woodwork, into obscurity. Like he said, he must increase, I must decrease. And now Jesus will take center stage. That's why this is, this, the baptism of Jesus is his, his coronation. It's crowning the king. It's his, his anointing with the Spirit of God. God the Son. Hearing the voice of God the Father and being anointed by the Spirit of God. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. There's a second reason that Jesus was baptized. And it was to identify with sinful humanity and their need for the cleansing that he would bring that he would ultimately take their sin upon himself, dying to pay their penalty. This was his first public identification with those whose sins he'd someday carried all the way to the cross. In fact, go with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, speaking of the suffering servant of God and what he would endure on behalf of sinful humanity. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11 It says that as the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Who will see it and be satisfied? The Father will see it and be satisfied. It pictures appeasing the wrath of God, that he would see Jesus going through what he went through when he took upon all the sins of humanity upon himself, that the Father would see that and his wrath against sin would be appeased. It points to the mercy seat. It's where we get that big word propitiation, where Jesus would propitiate, would appease the wrath of God against sin by his sacrifice. And that God would see it and be satisfied. And then it says this, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. And here Jesus is coming to his baptism, identifying, standing with fallen humanity, standing with the very people he came to save. He who had no sin stood with those who had no righteousness. He stood among the people of the world. He who'd come to do what they could never do for themselves. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus identified with sinful humanity. There's a third reason that he was baptized and it was to identify as that suffering servant of Isaiah 53 to identify as the servant of the Lord who would bring true righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we would, would not just have righteousness tacked onto us, but that we would become the righteousness of God in him. That when God sees us, he sees his righteousness. He sees no no defect. He sees Jesus. We stand in the mercy and the grace of God by the shed blood of Christ. And because he who knew no sin became sin for us, we could then become partakers of his righteousness. Not anything we work up on our own. Not anything because of our good behavior. Only because of Jesus' good behavior. It's interesting when I, when I think about Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 where it tells us that at the, at the fullness of the time, at the right time, God sent forth his son. The Greek word ekbalo literally means to throw out. Jesus was thrown out of heaven for his good behavior so that he could take care of our bad behavior, so that he could pay For our sin. He was identifying himself as he was being baptized as the servant of God who would bring true righteousness, true righteousness to bear, without which we have no hope. So believers receive Christ's perfect righteousness. It's imputed to us, it is reckoned to us as a gift. And you see, Jesus' baptism was clearly appropriate. It was clearly appropriate because when you look at verse 16, that after he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened. Heavens were opened. And and the Spirit of God descended as a dove upon him and, 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 and rested on him. And then there was this voice, the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Wouldn't that have been wonderful to hear that voice? we would have all been laid low in the dust in worship, in honor, at hearing the voice of God. Jesus' baptism was clearly appropriate. The Father is announcing that Jesus is the servant. He is my servant and he is also God. And as such, he is uniquely qualified to do what he was sent to earth to do. We see, we see in, in this in this. This verse, the Trinity, very clearly, the triune God in action. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And this is so important because the Trinity, as James White put it in his book, the forgotten Trinity, he said this, it is the highest revelation God has made of himself to his people. The Trinity, the triune God, the the highest revelation that he has made of himself to his people. See, God was pleased to announce that he exists as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, three persons yet one God. A mystery to us, unfathomable to us, and yet completely true. God revealed this truth about himself uh, most clearly in the incarnation when Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and dwelt among us. There's a lot we could say about the Trinity. There's a huge doctrine in Scripture. and And it plays an important part in baptism. But I want to turn a corner right now and ask a question. What does the baptism of Jesus have to do with us? What does it have to do with us? Well, here's what it has to do. It shows the significance of Christian baptism. Christian baptism. Baptism is a mystery to many of us. Over the years, I have misunderstood it many times. It is confusing There are many questions surrounding it. For example, do believers need to be baptized to get to heaven? Or just, do believers need to be baptized, or is it optional? Is it something God requires, or is it something he just suggests? If you don't need to get it to heaven, why would it be necessary? What if you don't do it? What if you're a believer, you love Jesus, you're following Christ, and you've you got this nagging question, I've never been baptized. Oh, what if I die today? What's going to happen? These are the kind of questions people have. These are the kind of questions believers wrestle with. So let's talk about a couple of these. First of all, do believers need to be baptized or is it optional? Believers need to be baptized. It's not optional. Believers need to be baptized. Is it something God requires or suggests? He requires it. By Jesus' own words. Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus instructed us to baptize. Not just to teach, but to baptize. Do you need it to go to heaven? No. It is something believers do. It's not something someone does to become a believer. There is false teaching out there that that tells you that. That if you're not baptized, and especially if you're not baptized in our church, you're not saved. That's a lie. You do not need baptism to go to heaven. So the question is, if you don't need it to go to heaven, what's the big deal with baptism? Isn't it optional then? It all has to do with our obedience. Because Jesus said, baptize. That's it. That's the the reason. The reason to get baptized, because Jesus said it, as a believer. The reason to get baptized as a believer is because Jesus said it. That should be enough for us. We'll talk about it a little bit more later when when I ask a couple other questions. But I want to bring up another thing. There's always the the topic of infant baptism uh, that, that... is confusing to many it's something about which scripture is silent it is not prohibited it is not encouraged it's not taught but nowhere in scripture does it say not to do it so what do you do personally i prefer not to base my views on scripture's silence but on where it speaks the clear pattern of scripture is that of baptizing by immersion into water those who've come to faith in christ it's called believers baptism by immersion now why do believers in jesus need to be baptized how does believers baptism please god now when you think about baptism baptism had been practiced for a long time before christian baptism was instituted in fact even among the jews gentile converts to judaism would be baptized they would literally baptize themselves John the Baptist was the first one who baptized other people. John's baptism was a powerful statement of repentance on the part of the person getting baptized. Any Jew that came to be baptized by John was basically admitting that they were like Gentiles, that they were in need of becoming the people of God inwardly, in a genuine way. It was a lot for them to admit, seeing how much they despised Gentiles. But John's baptism was in anticipation of Christ coming, of Christ's arrival. Christian baptism points to, the rela- to a relationship with Christ who has already come. In fact, Jesus' baptism dra- dramatically changed the face of baptism. Christian baptism was instituted from that point on in the book of Acts, the apostolic Uh, uh, trinitarian baptism that was going on for the first time now people were getting baptized in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit christian baptism points to a relationship with christ who has already come and the new testament spells out who is to be saved in fact go with me to the book of acts and i want to take you through several passages in the book of acts first of all acts chapter 18 Acts chapter 18 we're going to see that those who were baptized heard the gospel, believed the gospel and its message. So first of all Acts chapter 18 and verse 8. It's talking about someone named Crispus, a leader of the synagogue, a Jewish man. It says Crispus the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians when they heard were believing and being baptized. There's the pattern, believe then be baptized. He believes with all his household. Everyone in his household believed. Okay, now there, there's other places in, in the book of Acts that tie baptism to believing with an open heart. And go backwards in Acts to Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. And we're going to see uh, Lydia, the person, the lady uh, of Thyatira who sold purple fabrics. And it says that she was a worshiper of God, verse 14. And the Lord opened her heart, to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized. So they got baptized after they believed. She gladly received the message of Christ's death and resurrection. How about going backwards again to, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. It says that they were believing it says they believed philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of god and the name of jesus christ they were being baptized again believing and being baptized men and women alike if you go uh, a little bit further in this chapter acts chapter 8 verse 36 when philip is is speaking to the ethiopian man and they're they're going along the road and it says in verse 35 that philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture in isaiah he preached jesus to him he 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 shared the word of God with him. And it says in verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, hey, look, water. There's puddles out here, by the way, today, right? He say, hey, look, water. It says, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Made a profession of faith. What happened next? He ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. There's some immersion going on here. No sprinkling here. And and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. He believed and was baptized. You see, what you see in the book of Acts is that, that the people that were baptized were all capable of hearing and understanding and receiving and believing the gospel message. They believe what Peter and Paul and the other apostles said about Jesus. And so baptism is for those who, have, who believe the message about Christ and turn from their sins, repent. Now, there's no hint at all that babies were baptized in the New Testament. Only those that were able to consciously trust Christ. Now, there is one, there's a couple possible exceptions, and I'll bring you to them. And it's where households are baptized. You see it with Crispus's household and Lydia's household. Uh, look at Acts chapter 16 with me. The, uh, the uh, Philippian jailer. Okay? They, in, in verse 31, they have, uh, Paul and Silas had just been asked, what must I do to be saved? That's what the Philippian jailer asked. The response was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There it is. No baptism attached to that, right? Only believe in Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, meaning you and your household believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Some have taken this to mean that if he believed, then his whole household was saved automatically. Not true. You and your household believe, you will be saved. It says in verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, the jailer. He and all his, all his household, everybody who's living in his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly. Now, a lot of people use this for an apologetic for baptizing infants. Hey, his whole household got baptized. But they're forgetting verse 34. Verse 34 says, he brought them into the house, set food before them, rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The whole household believed. There are no ages given, by the way. That household could have consisted, and probably did, of those who were adults and youth and children that were old enough to believe. So why should you be baptized as a believer in Jesus? I want to give you three reasons. Three reasons for believers' baptism by immersion. The first reason that believers are to be baptized is to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. And you'll see there's two cross references here, Romans chapter 6, Colossians chapter 2. I want to encourage you to look at that later because um, I want to keep moving here, but both of those passages state that we are identified with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Now, when we're baptized, we are identifying with Jesus' work on the cross. When we're baptized, we acknowledge God's work in, in drawing us to himself and That we are identifying with Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. That we believe. We're saying, I believe I'm following Jesus. That's why you come to be baptized. Because Jesus says to be. Because that's the second reason, really. To obey God's instructions. First, you identify yourself as a follower of Christ. But you're also obeying God's instructions as you do so. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he said, repent and believe and then be baptized because your sins have been forgiven be baptized not to get your sins forgiven but because your sins have been forgiven it's clear in scripture that baptism is expected of believers now i know we have often made we've often downplayed this in the christian community because it's not essential for salvation and we keep walking down that road and say well since it's not essential for salvation it's not very essential it's not very important. And we, we then, in a sense, live as if it's, it's therefore non-essential for Christians at all. Okay, It's not, it's not needed for salvation. But Christians are, incur- are, are instructed to be baptized. So we make it an option. Instead of something God wants each believer to do once they're saved, to show their love and obedience for him. But you see, Jesus didn't make it an option. Jesus in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. You can can read it there if you'd like to go there. In fact, let's go there, Matthew 28. By the way, as we go through the gospel of Matthew, we will someday get to Matthew 28. Maybe five years or so, but we will get there. we're gonna get to Matthew 28, and here's what we're gonna read, the the, the Great Commission. Verse 18, all authority, Jesus said, by the way, when when they came to the place that Jesus had told them to go, many worshiped him. But some, it says, were doubting. They were wondering about Jesus. And here's what Jesus said. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Jesus didn't make it an option. See, we may not always understand what Jesus asks us to do, but when Jesus asks us to do it, we need to do it. John the Baptist did not understand that Jesus said, baptize me. He did not get the whole picture, but he still baptized him. The thing is, if you look at the the Great Commission, it says, go and make disciples. Help people come to faith in Christ. And And then baptize them. Help them show their faith in Christ. And then teach them. Help them know everything that I taught them. It says, Teach them all to observe all that I command you. Well, one of the things Jesus commanded was to get baptized. Right there in that same verse. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Ah, uh, first thing was baptism right here. See, we like to teach, but we don't like to talk about baptism because we misunderstand it often. But Jesus wants you, if you're a believer, to be baptized, to show your faith in him. Now there's a third reason, and it's really connected to the, to the, to the other two, specifically to, to obedience. It's, it's to express a desire to please God. You identify as a follower of Christ, you obey God's instructions, and then as you're getting baptized, you're really expressing a desire to do what God says. I want to take you to a passage in First Peter chapter three that's often misunderstood as it relates to baptism. and it's in First Peter chapter three and verse 21. And it says this, it says, corresponding to that, corresponding to Noah and his family being saved through the flood in the ark, baptism now saves you. So a lot of people have taken this to mean that baptism does save you from your sins and you need to be baptized to get to heaven. Not true because it's a misreading and a twisting of the scriptures. I want you to start with me at verse 18. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient. You can circle that word disobedient if you'd like, because it's a key here to the meaning of this passage. They were once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through the water. And Then it says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. It's tied into the obedience or the disobedience. Noah, who was obedient as a believer in God, then was, was, was brought safely through the water. Those that perished were disobedient and did not listen to God. The idea here is that baptism now saves you. It doesn't mean it, 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 it makes you a believer. It's believers that are getting baptized. So it shows that you're saved and obedient. It shows that you are saved. It shows that you are obedient. Because the next sentence says, not a removal of dirt from the flesh. You're not taking a bath. But an appeal to God from a good conscience. An appeal to God Not for a good conscience. Not that you have to be saved then. You're already saved and you already have a good conscience because Christ has forgiven you and you get baptized. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. It's it's a quick look at a very uh, confusing passage. But when when we are baptized, we are saying we want to please God more than ourselves. And when you get to that point, it doesn't matter how embarrassing or humiliating something is, like getting dunked in water in front of a bunch of people. You do what God calls you to do because there's been a transfer of ownership in your life over to Jesus. And he's the boss. You're not the boss anymore. He is Lord. You live and acknowledge that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, when you're a Christian, when you are a believer in Jesus. Now there's another question I want to address today today and it's a very very pertinent one for us at Grace Church of Orange, it's in regard to the mode of believer's baptism by immersion that we practice here at Grace Church. We practice believer's baptism by triune immersion. What that means is we dunk you three times. We dip you into the water three times. We immerse you three times. Why do Grace Brethren practice triune immersion of believers? I want to give you four reasons, three that are are the stock Grace Brethren uh, responses, and a fourth that I added, and and by the way, I'm a a new Grace Brethren. I've been a Grace Brethren now for two years and three months, so I may anger some dyed in the wool Grace Brethren, but I think that what I say will resonate with the the, the hearts of many, especially if you've been around the Grace Brethren for any length of time, because what I want to show you is it isn't just a weird thing that we do as Grace Brethren, it isn't just a weird thing. I, I've kind of joked about it. Oh, yeah, get dunked once or twice or three times or whatever. But this is something that, that has a grammatical reason and a theological reason and a historical reason as well as a practical reason. So let me give you the grammatical reason. First of all, the grammatical reason is the, because of the way the Greek reads in Matthew 28, 19, which says we are to baptize in or into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Each name is given in the Greek genitive tense, in the genitive case, which necessitates the the preposition of before each word, which relates it to something that's that's earlier in, in the verse. Baptizing and in the name. Baptizing in the name of the Father and baptizing in the name of the Son, and baptizing in the name of the Holy Spirit. Three separate prepositions signifying three separate actions, and even the meaning of the word baptizo, the word baptized. It, it means to dip, and many, mean it means, many think it means to dip repeatedly. Now, you don't want to keep dipping and dipping and immersing, or you're going to drown the person, right? So, so you stop at three, because it does mean something, which I'll show you in a moment. But it means to submerge. It's an immersion in water performed as a sign of the removal of sin that took place through faith in Christ. It looks back to the point of conversion. So there's the grammatical reason. The second reason is a theological reason. It's it's, it's completely foundational to our understanding of triune immersion. It pictures the Trinity as we mentioned as I mentioned earlier about these verses we're looking at today. We are baptized into the name of all three distinct personalities of the Godhead because each has a unique part in our salvation. It pictures the Father's call to us in salvation as he draws us to himself. It pictures the Son's finished work, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. It pictures the Holy Spirit's indwelling of Christians and his convicting of the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The triune immersion is a, uh, the symbol of baptism into the triune God. There is a reason for it. Baptism is the symbol of complete cleansing by God. It is a symbol of death and of burial and of resurrection and of entering into full union and fellowship with the triune God as revealed by Christ. See, when you come to Jesus, you don't don't just come to Jesus, you get all of God. You get God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit who are are co-equal and co-eternal and co-existent. So there's the theological reason. There's also a historical reason. For you history buffs, you're going to love this. Many practiced it from the first century onward. Try you immersion. Clement of Alexandria. He lived from A.D. 150 to 200. He wrote this. You were conducted to a bath just as Christ was carried to a grave and were thrice immersed to signify the three days of his burial. Tertullian. Lived from AD 160 to 220, he said this Jesus gave as his last command that they should immerse into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not into one person. Therefore, all who believed were immersed, for we are immersed not once but thrice at the naming of every person of the Trinity. Augustine, who lived from AD 354 to 430, wrote this in a sermon on baptism. In this font, before we dipped your whole body, we asked you, do you believe in God, the Omnipotent Father? After you declared that you believed, we immersed three times your heads in the sacred font. You are rightly immersed three times. Jerome, who, was, who lived from AD 340 to 420, wrote this, We are thrice dipped in water that the mystery of the Trinity may appear to be but one. And therefore, though we be thrice put under the water to represent the ministry of, mystery of the Trinity, yet it is reputed to be but one baptism. And last one I'll give you is Chrysostom, who lived from A.D. 347 to 407, wrote this, Christ delivered to his disciples one baptism in three immersions when he said to them, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, the early church taught and practiced triune immersion of believers now that lastly there is a practical reason that i added and it is it is this for it's for the sake of the fellowship it is for the sake of the fellowship of the believers see when it comes to immersing once or three times sincere and intelligent christians differ and while it's not wise to make it a point of contention or of breaking fellowship with those who don't agree with us, it is also not wise to go against your convictions. So if you are convinced that the Bible teaches triune immersion, then you practice it for the sake of the fellowship. But you don't make it something with which you, uh, by, for which you break fellowship or say, hey, well, you weren't triple dipped or you were, only, you, you, you di- you were so I'm not going to be your, your buddy or your friend or I'm not going to hang out with you. And some, some churches do that. For example, uh, to be a member at Grace Church here, we only, you only need to have been baptized by immersion as a believer. We don't require you to be triune immersed because it is not an essential, it is a mode. And while there is meaning, it is not a core Christian doctrine. But if you get baptized here you will be triune immersed because that's what we practiced. Some of you don't know this, but when I came to Grace as your pastor two years and three months ago, I was triune immersed. No one asked me to do it. I, was, I, was, I felt very strongly that I should be triune immersed because I was becoming a Grace Brethren pastor. It wasn't necessary. I'd already been baptized as a believer. No one asked me to do it. In fact, some of our elders said, you're not going to make us do that too, are you? Because not everyone in our leadership, not everyone in our, in our fellowship here is triune immersed, nor do you need to be. But I wanted to stand in solidarity with the Grace Brethren, and I wanted to make sure that when I was baptizing in a triune way, that I had gone through the same pattern. But it was to stand for the fellowship. And so I was baptized down at Newport Dunes. I want to give you a couple warnings or, and cautions about this whole idea of whether you hold to a certain view of baptism. Now, you may look at the evidence from Scripture, you may look at the evidence of history, and you may decide that that triune immersion is what God intends. But remember this, it is not a matter of salvation. It is of secondary importance. It has to do with obedience in the Christian life. In matters of conscience, I encourage you to follow Romans chapter 14, verse 5, which says this, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Later in that chapter, it says that whatever is not of faith is sin. If you know something to be true, and you know God wants you to do it, and you don't do it, then to you, it is sin. But be fully convinced in your own mind. And don't let what you do or don't do in the Christian life become a matter of pride, because that destroys fellowship with God and with the body of Christ. See, if you don't hold to this view... Don't dismiss it just because you don't understand it or it's confusing or you don't like it. If you do hold to this view, don't elevate mode over meaning. Remember that there are many non-core teachings uh, in our faith that we must hold on to uh, lightly. When we are studying, well, we can agree to disagree on the non-core things, right? But when we are studying things at the core of our faith, the things that we would die for, Things like Jesus being God and Jesus really dying on the cross for our sins. Those are the things we would die for. Then we must hold very firmly to those things. But when we are exploring areas of diversity within Orthodox Christianity or within uh, the biblical Christian faith, remember doctrines have different weight. So give your best energy to core beliefs. Hold secondary doctrines lightly. with with great degrees of of graciousness and love towards fellow believers. I have run into a few grace brethren that are not very gracious towards their brethren. Not in this fellowship, but in other places. And God does not want that to be that way. We've got to wrap this up. What's the bottom line for us today? What is the bottom line for us today? Not as it relates only to baptism, but to all of life to God's work in us, in every area of life, my encouragement is, make it your ambition, to be pleasing to God. Make it your ambition, your sole desire, to please God, in every area of life. With regard to baptism, if you're not a believer, do not get baptized. If you are a believer, and you've never been baptized, you need to be, because Jesus says you need to be. And that should be enough for us. And in all of life, aim to please God. In your inner life, in your heart, in your soul, in your family, in your work, in your, in your school involvement, in your leisure, in your civic duty. Go and vote this Tuesday. Practice some really good civil obedience. The Bible says a lot about civil obedience. Vote prayerfully in the way that you discern is most pleasing to God. And do it confidently. God has given you that gift, that privilege, that right. But ask yourself the question, in all areas, what would honor God most? Lord, I want to please you. I've got this relationship that is, that is very frustrating, and we always fight, and we never agree, and, and we're getting arguments all the time. Or I'm going through a lonely lonely period of my life, or I'm going through this difficulty health-wise, or it, with work, or whatever. You think about whatever situation you find yourself in, ask the question, Lord, what is most pleasing to you for me to respond? What's, what's my response that would be most pleasing to you? Lead me in that way. Show me what that is. See, pleasing God is not a matter of us straining really hard and trying to Really hard to do something good for God. That's not pleasing God. It's about yielding control to the one who is in control. Yielding control to the one who knows everything. But he wants your cooperation. See, there's this, another mystery. It's not just us sitting back going, okay, God, I want to please you and doing nothing. God wants us to work with him Working together with him don't receive the grace of God in vain. God wants us to work with him and he, he wants our cooperation. That he is in control but we are at his disposal. That we are, are yielding, we are willing, we are available. We're saying, Lord, here I am, send me. Thy will be done, Lord. I want to end with one verse. I want to read one verse. If you would, go to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And verse 11, it's, it's a prayer. Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy are praying. It says, to this end, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, to this end also, we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God will grant every desire for goodness and that just isn't a prayer of a holy man, a man who was, who was indwelt by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God inspired him and he spoke through him and now we have this scripture. That is the desire of our holy and righteous and good God who wants to do in and through you what he has purposed for his glory and for his honor. See, God has blessed every believer with Christ's righteousness, and he wants to bring about that righteousness of life that comes from obedience to his will. As you work together with him, he will be working in you what is pleasing in his sight. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you and praise you that you are at work in us and that you want to use us for your glory, that you have a a wonderful uh, purpose and plan for each one of our lives, each one of our families, and for this fellowship. I pray, Lord, that as, as we make ourselves available to you, Lord, that you would just do in and through us whatever is most pleasing to you. Lead us in that way. And we pray in Jesus' name.